Some say that the Tuatidanin, the old gods of Ireland, descended to the island in ancient days on a cloud of mist. To others, they were sorcerers from the far north, masters of the druid arts who sailed to Ireland and burned their ships on the shore, as there was to be no return to their old land. Where all agree, though, is that the Tuatha were not the first ones to set foot on Ireland, and when they did, they weren't alone. From the moment the Tuatidanin set foot on the land, a clash between them and its inhabitants seemed inevitable. And so the best-preserved stories of these old gods are of their battles. The events of the Irish mythological cycle come to shape the land and its history. Just as the land comes to shape all who set foot on it. Irish myth features drama, romance, and action, and a closer look reveals an insight into patterns that play themselves out across Irish history and people, and indeed all those who come in touch with the land in any way, even those a bit far from home. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. When the Tuatidanin, a name roughly meaning tribe of the goddess, arrive on Ireland, they already face outsiders on two fronts. One is the battlefield, where they clash with the Fearbulg, meaning men of the bags, who had escaped slavery and brought agriculture to Ireland. The clash between the Tuatidanin and the Fearbulg climaxes in a battle that claims a hundred thousand lives, including that of the Fearbold king, and takes the hand of Nuada, the leader of the Tuade. But in the aftermath of that battle comes a reminder of an encounter years before, of the goddess Eru staring at the sea. Off the coast of the island which bears her name, Eruland, or Ireland, she sees a silver ship rising across the horizon. Eru watches as the current carries the silver ship to shore, and a man with shoulder-length golden hair steps down and approaches her. The man asks to lay with Eru for an hour. Shocked at his lack of courtship, but shocked more so by his beauty, she agrees. When the hour is past and the stranger goes to depart, Eru laments two things. Needing to face the young men of the Tuatidanin who had been courting her, and that she does not even know the stranger's name. For the first lament, the man removes a golden ring and gives it to Eru. For the second, he reveals himself to be Elitha, king of the Favra, another supernatural people. Elitha speaks once more before he leaves, telling Eru that she is with child, and that it will be a boy named Bres, meaning beautiful, because all beautiful things will be compared to him. Bres would grow at twice the normal rate, a full adult by the time of the battle between the two Adadanin and the Fearbulk. 
when that battle is won, the Tuatodonon must choose a new king, as the king must be whole and without blemish, disqualifying Nuada when he lost his hand in the fight. Perhaps the Tuatodonon value an alliance with Bres's Favrakin, or perhaps they are enchanted by his beauty. In either case, he is the one chosen to lead the old gods in the settling of the island named for his mother, Ireland. Put simply, Bres is not a good king. Though it is the side of his mother, the Tuatodonon, that he is elected to rule, he favors the side of his father, the Favara. The Tuatodonon are made to pay tribute to three Fomorian kings. The gods are reduced to servants, building a fortress for Bres, made to hunger so that others can feast. But even in servitude, the two a day have the power of wit. Take the good god known as the Dagda, who is made to give the best of his food to a Fomorian whose mouth opens down to his chest. He places gold coins in his food, making them the best parts, poisoning the Fomorian simply by giving what he asked for. Or take Quirpa, the poet of the two a day who is denied hospitality. He turns his words into a curse which will topple Bres's kingship, which becomes known as the first satire. In a society like ancient Ireland, where kingship was chosen not by birth but by election, Quirpa's satire destroys Bres's legitimacy and hopes to rule. Bres asks the Tuatha for a seven-year grace period to end his rule during which time he returns to his father, the Fovra king Elitha, who recognizes Bres by the golden ring he gave his mother, Eru. Elitha asks Bres what brings him, and he answers with both self-awareness and stubbornness. His father was sad about him, and asked, What force brought you out of the land you ruled? Bres answered, Nothing brought me, except my own injustice and arrogance. I deprived them of their valuables and possessions and their own food. That is bad, said his father. Better their prosperity than their kingship. Better their requests than their curses. I have come to ask you for warriors, he said. I intend to take that land by force. You ought not to gain it by injustice if you do not gain it by justice, he said. I have a question, then. What advice do you have for me? said Bres. Elitha does not give Bres advice. The time for that has passed. Instead, he provides a host of Fomorian soldiers, foremost among them Balor, the fierce, gigantic champion of the Favara. As a child, Balor's one massive eye was exposed to the fumes of druid's magic, and now it rains destruction on all upon whom it gazes. Balor, it was said, could only be killed by his own grandson, which is why he locked his daughter away in the most remote corner of his fortress, Dunbalar, located north of Ireland, what is today called Tory Island. 
but fate often finds a way of skirting around our best efforts to stop it. And while the Favre make their preparations, Balor's grandson, Luch, comes to Tara, the court of the Tua de Danin. But not just anyone can join the Tua de Danin. Luch must provide some value to the court. Lu lists off his arts. He's a builder, but the two a day already have a builder. Lu is a smith, but they already have a smith. Lu is a champion, but they already have a champion. Lu continues. He's a harpist, warrior, poet, historian, sorcerer, physician, cup-bearer, and cook. Again, the two a day danin have all of these positions filled. But Lou points out what they don't have. Someone who can do it all. And just as the old Celtic god Lugus was portrayed with many faces, Luch is a jack of all trades, and proves to be the equal of each of the two a day in their own craft. The two sides spend years preparing for the battle. The Dagda forms alliances through romance, once through a union with the Morrigan, and once through a more complicated tryst with the unnamed daughter of a Fomorian warrior. The smiths prepare weapons, the carpenters prepare shields, the healers prepare medicine, the sorcerers and druids prepare spells. When the battle comes, King Nuada has a new silver hand, the satirist Quirpa has the words to spur fear in the hearts of the Favre. The Morrigan, sorceress and prophetess, has the magic to pursue the enemy without relent, and the Dagda has the skill to fight alongside his people. Surprisingly, missing from the plan is many-skilled Luch, the Tuatadanin keeping him sheltered, fearing losing someone so important. Kin are torn across sides when the Tuadidanin and the Favra clash. Glory and sadness, pride and shame are found side by side on the battlefield. Most destructive, though, is the giant Balor's evil eye, which takes the lives of many of the Tuadidanin, including Nua de Silverhand. But Luh escapes his captivity and meets him on the battlefield. It takes a host of men to pry open Balor's massive eye, the source of his magic and power. And as they do so, Luch slings a stone at Balor, making the giant lose his footing and turning his destructive eye on the Favre. And when the Fomorian warrior Indek asks who cast the stone, Luch answers that it is cast by a man without fear. Bolstered by a spell from the Morrigan, the two de Danin take advantage of the turn and gain the decisive victory. But it is perhaps the battle's aftermath that has the most to teach us. The first captive taken is Lochlethlis, the Fomorian poet. He offers Luch any request to spare him, and Luch has the poet use his talent, naming the nobles warriors, and even horses who were slain, knowing that the task can never be complete. Until the stars of heaven can be counted, and the sands of the sea, 
and flakes of snow and dew on a lawn and hailstones and grass beneath the feet of horses and the horses of the son of Lear in a sea storm, they will not be counted at all. Reyes is captured as well, making outlandish promises in return for sparing him. But rather than act in vengeance, the two Adonans spare Bres in return for something that he can give, the secret to agriculture. The Favre may have been enemies and invaders, but the two Adair recognize that they have a role to play too in Ireland's future. Just as her namesake Eru carried the fruit of her union with the Fomorian Elitha, all who today admire the endless shades of green in Ireland's fields or marvel at the words of her poets can thank the peace between the two Adidanin and the Favre. When the battlefield is cleared, it is the Morrigan who announces the victory with a prayer that tells the key to a lasting peace. Peace up to heaven, heaven down to earth, earth beneath heaven, strength in each, a cup very full, full of honey, mead in abundance, summer in winter, peace up to heaven. The Morgan tells of a relationship between heaven and earth, in which the people of earth have two roles, sending up their prayers of peace and aligning themselves to receive what heaven gives. When this bond is strong, cups are full with sweet abundance even in the depths of winter, just as the declaration of peace leads to abundance in the years following the battle. The Morrigan gives this address not only to the leaders of the Tuatadanan, but even to Ireland's rivers and fields and the she spirits who live under the earth. All the universe has a role to play, aligning itself to something greater in the hopes for peace. Stay tuned through this brief thank you message for one more word from the Morrigan, this time her prophecy for the end of the world. I would really like to thank everyone who has made it this far in listening to this story. Um, as you can tell, it took a bit longer, a few months than most, and that's because it took a lot of research here. Um, I had been back and forth trying to see where this story was going to lead me and learning about a culture that um, that is part of my own as an American of Irish descent, but also... Uh, is very mysterious in many ways, an ancient time that hasn't been as preserved as many others. It was really a joy and a great exercise to do this, and I thank you again for your patience, your wonderful support, all the kind words I always receive. Uh, thank you for that. Now, onto the Morrigan's prophecy for the end times. I shall not see a world which will be dear to me. Summer without blossoms. Cattle will be without milk. Women without modesty. Men without valor. Conquests without a king. 
ovens beeping without a reason to. Woods without mast, sea without produce, false judgments of old men, false precedents of lawyers, every man a betrayer, every son a reaver. The son will go to the bed of his father, the father will go to the bed of his son, each his brother's brother-in-law. He will not seek any woman outside his house. An evil time, son will deceive his father, daughter will deceive. And that is where the text that we have ends. <laughs>